0: Today is Friday, June 25th, 2021. Destiny is not a matter of chance. It is a matter of choice. W.J. Byron. You're listening to episode 248, Live on Purpose with Donna Fairhurst.
1: I do an exercise with my clients um, called Who's Driving Your Bus. Mm. And I liken the body to your car or your bus, a vehicle that you've been gifted with for your soul to reside in. And your mind is like the engine of the car. Your heart is the gasoline that you pour into the engine. And when you marry the mind and the heart, I call that sacred soul self. And when you are driving your bus from Sacred Soul Self, you're aware, you're engaged, you're on purpose.
0: This is the dance of life. My name is Tutor Alexander, and we are gonna go on a journey to hack your mind, body, and soul for living your best life yet. Tune in every week to learn something new, grow, and get inspired as we discover the secrets of success and practice the art of fulfillment. And if it's one thing I hope you learn from today, it's that your life is a dance. And just like any dance, you can learn to dance it well. What's up everybody, welcome to the show. Happy Friday to you. Thanks again for spending some time with me today. I have an exciting guest for you. Her name is Donna, and she is a Life and Soul Transition Coach and the Chief Evolving Officer of Soulful Solutions. She empowers her clients to create powerful pivots through any challenge and live on purpose with creativity and passion. Combining psychic abilities, aura imaging, healing energy modalities, and practical tools for daily living, she empowers her clients to their highest level of awareness here and now. I'm excited to have Donna on the show with us today. She has extensive experience in the world of energy healing, intuition, intuitive work, all that good stuff. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things in that realm, as well as her own journey through many challenges, including three near-death experiences and how she found her life purpose in her 50s and 60s. Very inspiring. So if you've ever been curious about your own life and finding your own purpose, as well as energy work, or how you can use this alternative perspective as a modality to help your own life, this is going to be a great episode for you. You know, in my own experience, I've done a lot of different things in this area. Uh, I've actually written about it in the in the big book I published recently, a whole chapter on energy medicine. And I've done, you know, I've spent so many, you know, hours and dollars <laughs> trying different things. And I can tell you, it's it's a very interesting world. Some of it's not. You know for me, but doesn't mean it's not for you, and some of it may be for you and not for me, so everybody's different. So you really just have to try and see. But the great thing is, is that can be a great alternative to anything that you're doing, whether it's in health, in business, uh, any kind of coaching. You know, sometimes just going and getting energy work done. You've if you've listened to me for a while, you know, I've talked about the emotion code uh, quite a bit, I've done you know, Reiki and all that kind of stuff. So I've had a lot of different things, I've had readings done. Everything has a purpose in your life, and so uh, if you're excited about that stuff, great. If you've never really tried it, you know my challenge to you is to open your mind and see what you see what you can learn about yourself. So we're going to be diving into all of that this episode. Super excited because Donna is quite the expert in this area. And if you want to connect with her, she offers a lot of these different kinds of services. Go check her out at donnafairhurst. dot com. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. This is episode 248. So just go to danceoflife.com slash podcast if you want to get the link and check her out. Thanks so much for being here. As always, subscribe and share with your friends, especially if it means something to you today. I really appreciate you being here. Let's do it. Live on Purpose with Donna Fairhurst. I mean, I can't imagine, although part of me is like, I can't imagine being a kid right now. It's such a crazy time with so many things. Imagine going to school and they have, you know, all the, just all the mask stuff they have to deal with. And, you know, it's just crazy to me. uh, Just having a kid, like my, my friends have kids, my good friends that I've known for a very long time. They have young kids. They're not in like, uh, you know, grade school yet or anything, but I'm just like, man, what a time to be alive. I'm like, I'm right at that generation, I think, that was right on the cusp between sort of tree houses and playing outside and you know. We got uh, to run. Yeah, we got to run, you know, which was You're probably
1: the last generation that has, has that kind of freedom that can remember that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we used to play, I used to have a tree house with my friends and we we would play like kickball outside. You know, I remember we would use like one of those speed speed bumps as the uh sort of the net you know and it's like we would we would wait for the ice cream remember the ice cream truck would come around and we would buy caps you know like these little explosive caps yeah. and you know, <laughs> shoot each other with it before <laughs> everybody was politically correct about everything you know so it's it's an interesting time you know i see these kids and it's just uh it's really sad to me part of me because on one side they're born into a generation where there's so much opportunity so many things where you can discover. Cause we're talking a lot about life purpose, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much opportunity. So many souls are coming to this time, right? Because it's exciting. They look down and say, wow, I, I want to be in this time and have all this opportunity. But I think with that also, there's just so many other things that come with it. So much distraction, so much. Like I think I read an article recently about kids, uh, how the current generation it's a very interesting article, especially if you're like into like neuroscience and psychology Mm -hmm. and stuff, but the way that, you know, computers and laptops and I, you know, all these things work, it's very much like left brain sort of click, drag, do this and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff is very segmented, very separate, you know, separationist type of thinking. And so there was a study that was basically saying that, you know, this new generation of kids is growing up with very much a hardwired left brain, you know, they're very super detail oriented. And so there's a lot of commentary about how there's a danger that that will lead in as they become, you know, teenagers and more adults. There's a lot of neuroticisms that come with that because again, you know, all these wonderful things that we're going to talk about today, like intuition and living your life purpose. They're sort of on the other side of that, you know, it's it's not analytical thinking. It's learning to let go of that side of your brain. And so Anyway, long story short, I'm just uh, I'm paying attention, you know, to this generation and how it's growing up. It's very interesting to me. So, I think
1: one of the disturbing things most recently in in most Western Westernized education systems is they are uh, stopping to teach cursive writing,
0: mm, and curse of
1: writing learned at an early age is the first thing that we learn other than you know, coloring and, you know, artistic, you know, cutting and that, um, that's a, a wholly right-brained activity.
0: Really? Whereas that's printing interesting. Printing
1: is a wholly left-brained activity. So when you think of a keyboard and typing, it's more linear like printing, and so yeah. it doesn't engage the right brain at all.
0: Wow, so that's interesting. the reason we had
1: these great thinkers and writers and philosophers is because they had to hand-write everything. And when they did, they had the time to consider what they were writing and feeling Mm. as they wrote it.
0: That's fascinating. I never even thought about that. But that's true, though. There's something to sort of that um, because everybody has a style, right? Like when you write cursive, they say that, you know, like there's that whole uh, side of psychology of analyzing. I forget what it's called now but you know, the analyze handwriting Mm -hmm. and yeah, handwriting styles and yeah. And it's like, obviously like when you're trying to print, you're trying to fit into a particular box of how the letters look, but with cursive, it's sort of much more free form. So you're allowing your creative side, like you said, to come forward. Uh, That's really interesting. I never even thought about that.
1: And the more free you write without just judging, I have two types of journaling. I have the journaling I do just as a meditation and a gratitude And I just let it flow and then I'll wait 24 hours. And before I do my next journey, I'll go back and read that and I will rewrite the parts that really stuck out with me. I'll also use many different colored pens. I'll just spontaneously, as I'm writing, choose a different color to to write with. And when I know that without even knowing it, I I feel 100% that I am flowing from whatever chakra that dialogue I'm having with myself is coming from.
0: I'll tell you what. I wish I could read half of the stuff I write. <laughs> <laughs> my handwriting is so terrible, and I mean, I'll tell you, like, all the other just today I wrote something last because I have so much stuff that goes through my brain that I write it down as soon as it you know it uh, comes into my brain. Otherwise, I won't remember it. And so, oftentimes, I find that I write something down and I can't read it the next day. I'm like, what the hell did I write here? You know, I don't know if that's (laughs) ever happened to you, but yeah, Yeah. there's definitely a, a level of discipline and intentionality you have to have with your writing. And they say like really creative people are very impatient. And so that's one thing I've struggled with, with journaling with handwriting is, is just like, I used to do it. I don't do it anymore in terms of the handwriting, but every time, I write now, it's just, I find I'm so impatient about it. I just need to like write it down and get it over with. And I can't read what the hell I wrote. So it's just, it's a funny little you know, one personal of the struggle. Things I,
1: sorry. One of the things I did this year with COVID is I I sat down and I wrote a letter that to everyone that was important to me. Mm. At some point during the year, I, I made a, a point to write a letter to each person that was really important to me or had made a difference in my life. And it was just a little thing for me. it it wasn't a big deal or I, I wasn't, I didn't have any expectations around it, I guess. And the, the, the response and the feedback that I got was such a reconnection to the basics of communication. Mm. And, and it was people treasured that, And since
0: then I've got a flood of letters and cards from those people that that I treasure. It's old school, I guess. Yeah. But you know, those things, I, we think we're so clever with everything, you know, and uh, I think that we haven't escaped our biology, nor will we anytime soon because we, we have evolved with certain things that are very fundamental to our nature. One of those being sort of, you know, physical interaction with people and, physical interaction, like touching things and, you know, writing it down, all these things. And I think that there's, it's not like, we tend to see like, for example, you know, we'll see like handwriting uh, or anything really. And, and you can tell me what your opinion on this is, but in my, the way I see it is like, there's been a shift in terms of sort of this convenience culture, right? Whereas we we take things that we perceive as sort of obligations like, for example, I saw, this is kind of an unrelated example, but it, it sort of relates as well. There's this new gadget. I, I love like biohacking and, you know, all these kind of gadgets and stuff. And so I'm always paying attention for new things. And there's a new thing coming out. Uh, it's like a flosser. I think it's called the InstaFloss or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's just, you know, you you just kind of put it in your mouth, it's like this little device, and you kind of go around your teeth. And it's just basically a two-way flosser water flosser and it's just super convenient, right? So you just kind of floss in like five seconds and you're done. And, you know, it's very appealing in that sense, like, oh, save the time, you know, get get rid of it, you know but there's more to flossing than just sort of the analytical brain will tell you. There's We're so dependent on the analytical brain for judging the value of things that we forget to consider what is the emotional or intuitive brain have to say about it. So for example, in this particular case, again, sounds like a silly example, but I would say, well, you know, from an analytical perspective, I'm saving, you know, whatever, 10 minutes. Okay, great. That equals good. I can have more time. But that's not really everything that's part of the decision. I mean, when you're sitting there, let's say flossing your teeth mindfully and slowing, slowing down, using that time to connect to yourself, maybe doing some uh uh, some, some gratitude practices in the mirror, some self-love things in the mirror, like using that time that you're flossing slower and mindfully to practice things that are sort of less obvious, then it's hard to compare, you know, it's like apples and oranges. You can't really compare those two things. You know, one is a completely analytical sort of decision. I just want to save time. Whereas the other one's a qualitative one. And so, but I think we forget to do that. I think we forget to employ our intuition And so we get caught up in all these analytical choices. And then we wonder why life is just not fulfilling, you know? So
1: one of the most amazing mindfulness exercises I ever was introduced to was by Louise Hay, like 35 years ago. Mm. And she said, it's called the mirror. You, you take sticky notes and you, you go into the mirror and you declare that day, what you want to be, see, have in your life and then you write I am whatever it is and you stick it on the mirror and you do that mindfully for 30 days and it's kind of like all of these things around you and what it comes down to in the end is that you're enough Mm -hmm. so with my clients I say take a lipstick or a, a marker pen and write on your mirror every day when you look at yourself look at yourself and say I am enough I have enough it is enough
0: That's so important. I, you know, I think mirror work has been one of the most powerful habits that I've been introduced to. Yeah. It's uncomfortable because I mean, you you, you look at yourself and it's like, it's so crazy how much we neglect ourselves. You know, we kind of think that maybe it's improper to sort of praise yourself or, you know, whatever, all these different things, but uh, that's, it's been a very transformative practice. It's something I, I need to be a little more consistent with, you know, I kind of go in phases where I'm doing it all the time and sometimes I rush through, but uh, it's, it's been really transformative, especially for me, it's been the physical body. You know, like I look at uh, myself and it's, it's really helped me accept my physical body, you know, and sort of have a love for, for that because it's like, man, you know, you, you look in your own eyes and it's a weird feeling and you could tell me kind of what, what you feel when you look in the mirror and how that whole, process has sort of shaped your uh, journey. But, you know, I look at my own eyes in my mirror and I'm like, there's a body that I have and it's, it's been given to me. And it's this this person with an identity, almost like I'm sort of taking care of them in this life. And sort of, then there's like the eternal, you know, I look in my eyes, right? The blackness of your eyes, that's the window to the soul, the universe mm-hmm. at large. And it's just like this very interesting experience of not disassociation, but seeing the idea that I have a body, but I am not a body and seeing that play out in front of the mirror is a very, uh, very interesting experience. It really leads to gratitude and acceptance and uh, a lot of things that we need, right? (laughs) A lot of things that we need.
1: I do an exercise with my clients um, called Who's Driving Your Bus? Mm. And I liken the body to your car or your bus, a vehicle that you've been gifted with for your soul to reside in. And your mind is like the engine of the car. Your heart is the gasoline that you pour into the engine. And when you marry the mind and the heart, I call that sacred soul self. And when you are driving your bus from sacred soul self, you're aware, you're engaged, you're on, on, on purpose. Regardless yeah. of where you are, what you are, who you're with, or what you're doing. If you're driving the bus of your life from that place, and just just like anything else, you need to take care of your vehicle. Yeah. You want it to last until your soul chooses to transition.
0: That's I was um, looking oh, at your ahead. health tips, and I love them. You're looking at the what?
1: I was looking at some of your health tips, and I love oh. them.
0: Yeah, I the, printed uh, a bunch the, of them ha- out for my husband. The hacker blog, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's great. I mean, it, it's it's true though, because ultimately, you know, I think one thing that I've seen, um, you know, is everything is related to everything, right? So ultimately, like for example, like people in the business field talk about business strategies, or you know, all these different things. And You see all these people grinding their ass off, and they don't take care of their bodies, and it's like it, your body is your battery you know if you don't have a battery then you can't really do anything else i mean that's just to me it's just natural that anybody now you don't have to be some crazy biohacker or anything like that but i i believe fundamentally i believe that the body that the challenges we experience physically are actually sort of unique challenges that are related to our spiritual path and i'm sure you know spiritual you dna with it. yeah Get spiritual off. dna and I'm Ultimately, like every challenge you have physically is there to evoke some spiritual lesson. And so the body to me is a canvas that you are here to learn certain things. And so you should, everybody should embrace learning about their body uh, to the extent of being able to maintain, you know, an optimal life and have good energy and be able to do what you want to do. Exactly. You know, that's just a standard to me. So. Well, you've had quite a an interesting life i'm curious you know if you want to share your story about how you were born nearly blind and how you know you kind of had all these abilities very early on but you you sort of you know kept them inside for a very long time and how you have found yourself now and how you got to that point i'm it's a very interesting story so i'd love for you to share it
1: oh i'm uh I'm happy to share it. Um, well, I was, I was born uh, to uh, a French-Canadian father and um, English mother and uh, lived on a very large ranch in a remote area of southern Alberta back in the early 50s. I was born in 1951, and I was born legally blind. My parents didn't know this until I was nearly 12 years old. I actually could not even see the big E on the chart three feet away from it. Wow. But because I was born with also uh, this kind of diffused vision, it was very easy for me. And I always saw chakras and auras and auric fields. And I also saw the, the beings, the energy beings that were around and in those fields that other people didn't see and living remotely as I did, I didn't have any interaction with a lot of children. And then at the age of one, I contracted polio when my brother was uh, being prematurely born. So if you can imagine my parents having a seven weeks premature baby boy running a, I think the the ranch had 96 and a half sections.
0: Wow. So
1: it, it was huge think, think of an eighth of Southern Alberta, which is a big province Uh, and, um, having to care for this, uh, premature baby, look after uh, a big ranch and run it. We ran thousands of heads of cattle. And, um, my mom sent me for six months to live with my grandparents, my grandfather and, and his wife. And, uh, I I had no framework. It was a very, very quiet, very solitary life. What I was very fortunate about is when I was healthy enough to come back home, my um, step grandma, she was a nutritionist before it was ever a thing. And she was one of the first people to start uh, making and selling supplements and finding pure ingredients to make supplements. And she poured them into me. And I believe that that's why I can walk today. It also really uh, helped my eyesight in ways that I I now realize that I didn't know as a child. When I came back home and started living back home, shortly after that, we moved to a small town near the city of Calgary. And that was my first inclination that I was different. I was always talking to spirit. I was always seeing spirit. I, I saw what I guess people now would call fairies, but they're actually elemental spirits. So what I call them. And angels were, were second-hand. I, I always knew angels. I saw now what I now know to be deceased souls that had passed over and were coming forward as guides and guardians for me. But as a child under the age of four, I didn't define it as that. And then one day when we moved to this town, There was not a a plumbing system for the whole town. So every few houses shared a well, a common well, and you still had to haul your water. There wasn't indoor plumbing yet. So my father would go and haul this water. So think of me four years old and my brother is three and we're sitting on this big concrete step and there's a big rose bush behind beside the step. And my father is going to haul water. And my brother was a bit of a runner. He liked to run everywhere. And my dad said, hold on to your brother and don't let him leave the steps because we lived near a busy street. And he turns his back and goes to get water. And I'm sitting there and this beautiful little ethereal spirit appears in this rose bush and is like talking right out of a rose to me. And, of course, I'm enamored with this spirit. I'm talking away with it and listening to it. and, And, of course, I let go of my brother's hand. He immediately takes off to follow my dad, gets diverted by God knows what heads for the road. My dad looks up, sees my brother, runs like hell, grabs him, gets him back to the road. He's furious with me. My dad has never, ever lost his temper with me in my life to that point. He sets my brother down, says, what were you thinking, Donna? He grabs me. And I said, dad, dad, I was talking to the the, the little girl in the bush. And he was going like, what? I said, there was a little face in the bush, like a little a little angel in the bush i was talking to the little angel and he picked me up by the scruff of my hands and he held me up in the air and he gave me one smack on the butt and said that's for letting go of your brother and the second one that's for lying and the third one is that's for not listening well <laughs> wow. i'd never had a spanking in my life my parents had never ever laid their hands on me suddenly suddenly i was a bad girl i had talked to crazy I lied, I all of these things. Now, at four, I couldn't integrate that through an adult lens. So I just shut it down. Hmm. I, I just stopped. And a few times over my life, I would say, oh, that person's a funny color. And my mother would say, oh, what do you mean? I'd say, oh, they're just, you know, gray or, or they're blue-black. Or she'd go, I don't know what you're talking about. You must be going to be an artist. Hmm. And and I was very artistic. I never drew and colored the way normal people do because I, everything was a like a wash of color for me. So everybody kind of looks like some kind of exotic Christmas tree to me hmm. all the That's time. That's so interesting. And then when I started talking to Spirit, my parents got really upset around 12. They thought I was mentally unstable and so my mother took me to a child psychiatrist and he said oh she's just highly creative and da, da 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 we'll do some hypnosis sessions so she won't remember her bad dreams and you know create these other worlds around them and so I did shut down and I I don't for one minute think that the hypnosis worked because I kept on seeing everything and doing everything and talking to everything but I just never talked about it to anybody hmm. And then in my first marriage, I had a bad experience with my partner. Um, And then I I just completely shut down. And I shut down from, you know, pretty much until I was in my mid-40s. And then another psychic outed me and people started finding me. And I started finding myself helping people, even though I was not in a career doing it. And then later on... um, when I married my third husband, he said to me at the age of 64, Hey, when are you going to do what you were born to do? You're here to help people. When are you going to start doing it from outside of the closet?
0: Yeah. That's inspiring. I mean, that's really inspiring because I think a lot of people can relate to that journey, you know, of, of sort of living in this incongruence between, what you feel right and what you know is true and kind of that outside pressure of of society whether it's your parents it's you know other people around you your work your spouse it's such a it's such a common path and i think that's that's really the path everybody has to go through at some point point. and everybody's got a different timeline right i mean everybody and some people you know some people live their life in incongruence you know and they don't figure it out this time They <laughs> maybe next time right so, our life and
1: our lessons are the journey. I, I, I saw a lot of similarities, different, different ages, different decades. Yeah. But I saw when, when you look at the trajectory, I can never say that word, trajectory of a soul's lifetime, we all are given these gifts of challenge. Yeah. You know, life is a mountain that we climb. And when we get to the peak, we see another mountain, yeah. you know, well, there's a valleys and mountains and we're meant to go through those valleys and mountains. I relate so much to, you know, some of the things that happened in your life, the, the ups and the downs, the broken, the rich, the broken, the rich, the up and the down. Abundance is a choice. Yeah. Peace is a choice, you know, where whatever's happening.
0: Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm curious what you think, or how do you, how should I phrase this? How do you live in faith? Like what's, what's been your, some principles that have guided you because for me, you know, especially in this last year and a half, I mean, (laughs) I'm sure everybody can relate to the last year and a half being just absolutely crazy, but uh, it's been a reminder of in the end, everything works out. I've always believed, you know, for some reason, you know, that, we're just taken care of, you know, and I, I've just believed that. And I believe that as long as you believe that you don't get lost to the local illusion of, of chaos and, and things falling apart, that it just works out. It always does. And certainly it may not be easy in the moment, but it just always works out. So I'm curious kind of what have, what have been some principles in your life that have helped you, especially mm. now recently, you know, being in your life path and your purpose and really living your purpose to stay in faith, especially I'm sure last year, like I said, in the last year and a half, I'm sure you've had a lot of challenges in 2020. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what has been some of your big insights from from all that?
1: The more out there in the world we think we have to be is more indicative of how much more we need to come in. And um, I think that there is so much distraction in the outer world to be here, do that, all of the social media, all of the tech, all of the, um, one of your podcasts come to mind where you were talking about templates and writing and how it was, uh, it was far more important to write something authentic that might not be perfect and be your true voice Mm. than to take a swipe file I I only found out a couple of months ago what a swipe file is. So I call myself technosaurus Rex. (laughs) That's
0: okay. Some things are timeless and it's, those are the things that matter.
1: I think though, I found that even though we didn't have the physical presence of being with our, our family and our friends and our clients face to face, that was a really tough one for me because I'm a really hands on coach and person. I like, my clients to be in my space with me and they do too yeah. so not being able to do that was for me the first first six months was just kind of heart breaking but yeah. it was really hard expanding because what it did was challenge me to get past my fear of technology to actually master zoom i'm, I'm here having this with you that's a mini miracle to me yeah We're like
0: thousands of miles apart. That's pretty crazy to think about, right? And
1: I have now participated in so many amazing wellness experiences with multiple teachers and masters and coaches and being able to reach out and touch people all over the world that I I would never have, you know, had in in my sphere of, of influence and also as teachers and influencers for me. When COVID hit, I was in San Diego at the New Media Summit, and we had to change all of our plans and pivot and get back. COVID was just hitting, it hadn't been officially declared in Canada. We were getting texts and emails from our children saying, Hey guys, can you get Canadian news down there? And actually, we couldn't get very much Canadian news. So, you know, I was at two o'clock in the morning trying to tune to CBC to see what was happening in Canada and what we had to do. And we ended up uh, being able to finish the summit, but switch our plans. And we literally got flew into Calgary, Alberta on the way home five minutes before the border closed, we would have wow. been stuck um, on the other side. And while they figured out what they were going to do with all the Canadians that weren't in Canada. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a curve. Um, now I think, I still have, you know, resistance to Facebook lives and things like that. But I realized now that it's just another way to be energetically clear and present, sitting with them the way I'm sitting with you. And that was a huge, not just a mind shift, it was a heart shift for me because I really, um, I teach energy, I am energy, we're all energy but I was kind of being controlled by the screen and the keyboard. And I felt that they were somehow bigger than my voice and my presence. Hmm. So that resistance that I had, I had to, you know, cut that cord and delete it.
0: So mm-hmm. now one of my favorite
1: sayings is delete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a value to learning to say no to things and letting go because a lot of times it's, it's, I think more about what you can delete rather than what you can add. Sometimes just deleting things makes a huge difference. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So. so
1: do you watch dancing with the stars? Cause you're such a great dancer.
0: Oh gosh. No. I mean, I haven't watched that show in fra- My parents watch it, I think when it's on, but you know, that show for me has, I was actually on the tour, believe it or not, when they Were came you? to Phoenix, they, well, they wanted some local performers to be part of a mock competition. So my, my claim to fame is I have a picture somewhere. I have to find it. I think it's on my Facebook profile, but it's right on the dancing with the star stage. I'm doing some cool move, you know, whatever. It was like some grainy picture that one of my students took of on their <laughs> phones. This was like in 2000, gosh, I think seven or something. So it was, it's hard to think that it was that, that long ago, but yeah, I haven't watched it so much because to me, it's just, you know, we talk about authenticity and, this'll be a good, good thing to talk about because for example, you know, learning your purpose or, or sort of being in your purpose, I think it's very important to, to understand what isn't your purpose either. Right. I mean, that's, that's really a big one is knowing what you're not, you yes. know, sometimes we get so focused on who am I, what, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? You're trying to find like the positive, the affirmative stuff. And that's important, but sometimes the opposite way of doing things, which is Okay, what am I not like? You know, where do I draw a line? Where do I delete? Where do I say no? That can help you figure out sort of the contour of your purpose too. You know, so that that's another way to look at it. And for me, you know, with Dancing with the Stars, uh, you know, the way they started the show and what it is now is is just totally. And now of course, yeah, I'm biased. I'm a you know, I, I did that for a living, and so I have a different eye when I look at it. But which any professional would, but, you know, you look at it in the beginning and it was very much about ballroom dancing and ballroom dancing. If anybody knows what ballroom dancing is, or has watched it is very much about male and female. And it's very much about traditional roles. uh, You know, and it's very much about duality and, and sort of discipline and skill and structure. And there's just all these, that's a thing. Right. And so now, you know, because they've tried to sort of I don't know if they're trying to compete with dance, you know, world of dance and all these different things. And they're bringing on all these different things just to, they've focused on the bells and whistles rather than focusing on the basics. Mm-hmm. And I think all this, the, the stuff we're talking about now, that's why I'm choosing to talk about it. I think it, it can expand to any other topic in terms of life purpose, because when you focus on the basics, you know, that's really where life is at. It's not in the, waving your arms around and having this drama and trying to get attention and, you know, just trying to basically play to the algorithm of, of whatever's hot right now. Uh, and you lose your way, you lose your authenticity. Like I watched that show and it's just like, it's all just BS. And of course it's television, you know, it's entertainment. Part of it is going to be sort of, uh, you know, out there and be more showbiz, but I don't know. It's just, for me, it's, it's lost its authenticity. And so I, I just it's a, it annoys me.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. i i'm I'm happy to hear that because I don't watch it, but I have a lot of friends that do, and I love to dance and was was quite a dancer in my younger days. It's one of the things that my parents started me on really early to help mm-hmm. me with polio. You know, they were the original physiotherapists for polio victims in nineteen fifty one before there was wow. physiotherapy, and they're the reason I can walk today. Wow. Um, I'll give you an example. My father would tie me on the back of a horse with my arms over the horse's rump, and my, I would be cinched on, and he would run the horse around and around a corral, and those big, warm, hot horse muscles would massage all the muscles in my body,
0: wow. and he would
1: tie me on my back and do the same thing, That's and so he would tie me on his back, and he would jump into Chain Lake, and he would swim miles with me on his back making my arms move and as soon as i could stand up and move myself they put me in a large cattle trough and had me swim in the cattle trough where they could catch me if i went under
0: wow so i
1: became a dancer and a swimmer really on my dad would tie my feet on his feet and dance
0: with me your parents sound pretty inspiring are they still alive
1: no, no, my father has been gone for over 40 years and my mother for 12.
0: Oh, but wow. they okay.
1: left all of the goodness behind, yeah. you know, and my dad was a badass, too. He was a French Canadian cowboy. So, you know, he was full of spirit and life. And my mom was highly educated and very um, linear, but also spiritual. When we were children, my dad was a French Canadian Catholic and my mom was a died in the wool Protestant and so they decided that they would not raise their children in a specific religion. So for two weeks of a month, we would go to Protestant church. In the next two weeks, we'd go to the Catholic church. And then every other month or every other week, depending on what whim was, you know, what was in the air that day, they would take us to a church of a completely different denomination. Hmm. So by the time I was 12, I'd been to a Sikh temple, I'd been to... Jewish temple. I had been to a Chinese church. I'd been to a Moravian church. I'd been to an evangelist church. You know, I'd been prayed over in in many different ways, forms, and faith. And when we were, you know, between the 12 and 14, my parents would say, now find your way. Pick Mm. what resonates with you. And the lesson I got from them is that faith is a choice, and it's what resonates with your soul and your heart and what speaks to you what says this fits me it's it's gotten under my skin and I can feel it in me and for uh, as a result I have a sister and a brother and all three of us have completely different spiritual practices and yet when we come together we have this resonance of faith from these all these dimensions that we became like I guess spiritual cherry pickers What never failed was this unwavering knowing that it is bigger than us, that there is a creator, there is a source. We don't come from nothing. We are an integral part of all that is and a very necessary thread in the fabric of infinite unity. And as such, we have an obligation to show up and be all that we can be. Whatever is happening, wherever we are, with whomever we're with. It's, I get so many of, of my clients initially when they, they come with me into a coaching practice. It's, you know, a lot of them are burnt out professional women you know, between the ages of 30 and 60, and they've, they've got it all. A lot of them have it all. They're not stuck in, in misery in their life in any way, shape, or form, but they don't know what it's all about. They don't know what they've done it all for. And they feel like they've missed the boat or they're not on purpose or they don't know what their next purpose is because maybe this career is coming to an end or that relationship has changed or someone has died. And now they they feel like they've lost the meaning of their life. But that's just a feeling inside. They're still there. That soul is there. And that soul has meaning. And the purpose is to grow through all of the experiences that's our purpose to grow to know to flow and then to glow literally glow be the light of of the lessons we've learned on the journey because they've all come from our choices Does so true make sense
0: <laughs> yeah no I, i'm 100 percent with you i mean it's so i like the alliteration you have or the rhyming that was it was the order like learn or no
1: oh that's that's my grow flow
0: glow (laughs) no
1: grow flow and glow
0: no flow grow and glow that's cool
1: yeah yeah no grow flow you have to to really get this purpose thing down you first have to make a per make it a purpose of knowing yourself right yeah And when you know yourself, you know what you like, you know, you said it just just a few moments ago so beautifully, when you understand you and what makes you tick and what you like and you don't like and where your integrity is invested, right? It's, It's a whole different dimension from just going with whatever anybody else is saying, when you know yourself and you trust yourself and you stand in that light, in that power, you shine brighter and you're a mirror for your authentic self. And when you show up as that, nothing, no matter what happens, nothing can stop you from being that you are. And your voice, your words, what you say, That has powerful meaning. You're a radio station to the universe. You have a unique signal, just like the iris of your eyes and your fingerprints and, you know, the the size of your left toe. That's uniquely yours. No other being has it. So be you because you're a gift to the universe. You were born to be you, not be someone else
0: how funny we get uh, we get so trapped in comparing ourselves right i mean to to other people to other people's journey it's just we get in this trap of perceiving that we want something from someone else's journey but we don't see sort of the the costs before and after that one thing right we don't see that everything comes with spiritual lessons so it's not like one particular success is more desirable than the other because ultimately it's about that growth, that spiritual growth, either way, you know, I, I always say you can't escape your transformation. No, <laughs> the, you the question is how fast do you want it to go? I think that's the yeah. only question. And ultimately that's a choice, but uh, you can't escape it. So.
1: You I, know, I, uh, my father had a saying, which I never understood. He said, whenever he was really upset with something, he'd say he was going batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. And i would always go, dad, you know, that doesn't sound really good. And he said, yeah, well, it just is. You'll get it someday. And when this whole shift with the technology and having to meet my clients here on Zoom and and uh, on Facebook and that, I was just like, "You lit, felt
0: that shit crazy." Going huh? <laughs> that
1: shit crazy, and I remember sitting here, tutor, and saying, "Dad, I'm so sorry. I get it. I really yeah. get it."
0: You said your mom passed away twelve years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, based oh, on no, that- more than twelve years ago. I'm sorry.
1: So, uh, she passed
0: away in 2009. So, yeah, that's about 12 years ago.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, I'm not good at math.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. Cause I, you know, I'm curious because you said your dad passed away about 40 years ago. So yes. based on yeah. the timeline of your own sort of story, your dad wouldn't have been around to see the purpose that's unfolded in your life in the last 15 years but your no, mom, but, was, but your mom was, so I'm curious, you know, how was that relationship at the end? Was she like oh, accepting of everything that's happened? Like, how, how did that go?
1: Well, I was, I was so blessed, you know, with my mother and I'm, I'm really blessed with my, my brother and sister too. All three of us are very different and we come at life from very different um spiritual, well, not spiritual not belief systems, but the way we empower and act from spirit is different. And the lens we look at it through is different, but we have this cellular DNA, spiritual language that we, that we all have from our parents. We have spiritual DNA, just like we have physical DNA and we have, we carry spiritual DNA from previous lifetimes as well with us. So, My dad became a believer with me at the age of, I was not quite 12 when my grandfather died and I was very close to my grandfather, even though he didn't live nearby. And he was very, very French Canadian. And um, I used to laugh when my parents were together because my father spoke good, broken English and good French. And my mother spoke good English and broken French. And all of us kids had some sort of like, Mishmash of of all of that. But when I spoke to my grandfather, he was a very eloquent speaker. And he was a Saskatchewan dirt farmer, um, scratched his whole life to raise, you know, to adulthood 19 kids. So it was 19 kids. And um, when he died, uh, I had been going through this psychiatry thing with my parents where they thought that I was a little bit unstable because I talked to spirit and I knew things that happened before they happened and it freaked them out. So when they asked me not to talk about it, they called them my bad dreams. Um, If it came up in conversation, they'd shush me and move me along or give me a chore to do or something. So when my grandfather died, uh, he came to me and literally, Tudor, he came in, he sat down on my bed, he shook my shoulder and he said, you know, Donna, and I had a nickname uh, from my older cousins. They called me Toadie because I, I hop. Sometimes my muscles <laughs> would get weak because of the polio. And yeah. I would sit down and I would hop like a frog. Oh. So when I was young, they called me Toadie, you know, because I was like this little toad hopping around
0: yeah. until
1: I got my feet. And um, he said, hey, Toadie, wake up. I need to talk to you. And so I said, I called him Papa. And I said, so Papa, what are you here for? Why are you here? daddy didn't tell me you were coming. And he said, well, I'm dead.
0: And I said, what? <laughs> he said, you were like 12 I, at the time, right? I, I, yeah. I was
1: 11 it. turning 12.
0: Yeah. And then
1: he, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I've, I've, I'm with God now. And I said, Oh, well then what are you doing here? And I started crying and he said, don't cry. We don't have time. I need to talk to you. He said, I'm, I'm here for a specific reason. I want to tell you exactly how I died, what I, what happened, everything about it. And I said, okay, why? And he said, because I want your father and your mother to know that you're not a liar, that you're not crazy and that you're not making this up. And this is the only way that they will believe it. Wow. And literally he had only been dead a very few hours They brought him into the hospital in Saskatchewan, which was an hour ahead of our time. And he was um, there for like three hours before all of the, you know, people started, the word started to get out. And um, he came to me, woke me up, told me this. He told me how he died, where he died, what happened, uh, who came, who found him, what time the ambulance came, who was at the hospital, and as it happened, one of my cousins was an admitting nurse in the emergency at the hospital, so she was, she knew right away that her grandfather had passed and called her mother, my Aunt Irene, and uh, she was, you know, like all the, all the Saskatchewan family was getting ready to call all the big family in Alberta, And um, he said, your dad is going to get a call very soon. I want you to go and wake him up. Now I have to go. But he showed me his casket. He showed me the outfit he'd picked out. He showed me everything. And uh, he said, now go wake up your father and tell him just what I've told you. And he disappeared just like that. And I screamed and I started crying and I ran into my parents. And of course, dad says, oh, she's having another nightmare. Take me back to bed. And he's trying to get me from their bed across the hall back to my bedroom and the phone rings. And I said, dad, you have to listen. You have to listen. Papa's dead. This is how he died. This is where he died. This is when he died. He told me to tell you that so you would know I'm telling the truth and I'm not crazy. And so my mom's holding me in the hall. The phone is ringing and it's my auntie Irene on the phone. And we had, you know, those old sixties, this was in the sixties. And they had those little chair benches with a little table, telephone table. Oh,
0: sure. Yeah. The little
1: telephone table is there. And my dad is going to try to sit down on the chair. And when he hears what is being said, he just kind of misses the chair and he sinks onto the floor and his feet go out in front of him. And he's sitting on the floor, holding the phone and he's looking down the hall right into my mom and eyes, eyes. And he said, well, when did he die? And then he said, yeah. And how did he die? And okay, okay, this is going to sound crazy, but what was he wearing when they brought him in? And then my dad started crying. And I thought he was crying because his father had died, which was true. But he was also crying because he realized in that moment how cruel and how awful he and my mother quite, you know, unknowingly, or because of the type of faith that they carried, um, didn't believe me. Hmm. So when the conversation was over, he, you know, told my mom, calmed her down. And then he took me back to my room and sat on the bed and said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that we didn't believe you. I'm so sorry that we didn't listen and see you through god's eyes god never makes an imperfect child everyone is born perfect just the way they are and there's nothing wrong with you but i still don't want you talking to people about ghosts
0: <laughs> wow that is what a story yeah and so your mom like when you when she was you know about ready to pass away she had started to see that that overlapped with you doing some of the work you do now, right. With all the energy healing and, and coaching and things like that. And so was she like supportive of it or was her religious mm-hmm. beliefs kind of like, Hey, you know, that's too woo woo for me. You know, you got go to go to church, that kind of thing. was there, what was the relationship like at that point?
1: Well, well Tudor I lived oh, I left Canada in 1979 and I moved to Southeast Asia and lived in Indonesia for 12 and a half years. Wow. And that's where I really, uh, it, undercover, again, It was I, I was exposed to a third world country that was massive with a huge population that was predominantly Muslim. But there were also uh, a lot of uh, enclaves of British and Dutch and French and even Japanese from the Second World War. Uh, there was a lot of nationalities. Uh, I was part of a, a group that built an international school in Medan, which is the capital of Sumatra. And in our school, when we opened the school, we had 124 children and we had 17 nationalities. Wow. So it was a really huge experience of living in a, an, a bubble of an international culture within a huge country that was predominantly Muslim. Um, The people that I knew and came to love and came to be a part of community with there, both the national Indonesian community and the international community, shifted my way of looking at the world. And there were so many different religious Levels and layers and religions and uh, two of my two of my great mentors when I was there, one was uh, Father Van Dam. He was a Jesuit uh, Catholic priest, and he ran a, a school for the blind and the deaf, and also an orphanage for blind and deaf, and and children with mental disabilities. Because not Jean
0: Claude Van Dam, right?
1: <laughs> no, his name his name was just Father Van Dam can even, I don't even know if I ever really knew his first name. I think it was Philippe, hmm. but we just called him Father Van Dam. Uh, and it was funny too, because some of the little kids couldn't say it. And they'd always call him, here comes Father Dam Dam.
0: <laughs> Dam Dam. Because
1: <laughs> he couldn't see the V. And he got a big kick out of that. Another um, great mentor of mine that that taught me a lot and who could also see auras and chakras was a very young, about your age, Uh, He would be your age now, then. And he was a Coptic Egyptian priest uh, whose father was the, uh, the manager of the opera house in Cairo. Wow. And so, and I was actually in a gym in the Tierra hotel in Maidan Sumatra. And I was in my um, late twenties. I think I was like 29 at the time. And I was on this treadmill with, uh, father Sherry beside me. And I, I, I could see this mirror and I could see this girl that was exercising and her colors were just so vibrant. And I, I was staring at her in the mirror as I was on this treadmill. And he said, what are you staring at? And I said, oh, uh, I'm staring at her colors. And he said, what? You see her colors? And I said, yes, of course I see her colors. Everybody has colors. And he said, you're the first person I met that saw the way I see. Hmm. So we had a relationship. He's the, He was the first person I ever met that was like me, that could see auras and chakras. I didn't know that it was a thing. But he had actually studied a lot of Eastern philosophies and he knew and religions. And he knew all about chakras and auras and auric fields to the degree that we knew about them then. And he was the first person to speak to me about dissonance and resonance in energy fields. And we both had a, a really passionate interest in interest in astronomy and um, higher levels of energy. So they were great teachers for me, but the greatest teachers were the Indonesian people themselves because. By and large, they were the kindest, most generous, most unjudging people I've ever had the good fortune to be with, let alone live amidst. And they taught me a very great deal. And when the tsunami hit, um, I and the literally some of the villages and the towns and the people that I worked and lived and played and taught with were wiped off of the face of the earth in a matter of minutes. That was a a wall, that was a mountain that I climbed. Um, When it comes to my mom, she was embracing the fact that my sister and I were both on these different but similar spiritual journeys to be very expressive around our spiritual beliefs. And it was difficult for her. She wanted to embrace it. She was intrigued, but she, and, and and, I don't like the word, but, and she felt that um, she just didn't know enough. She, she didn't feel like she could feel it. And then when she started to lean into it, and we would start to talk about angels, and we would start to talk about guides and guardians. And I remember one day uh, before she was really far gone, because uh, she had a dementia that went with this illness. And she said, your father came and sat on the bed today. And she had, you know, some real issues sometimes with being mentally there. And I said, did he? And what did he say? He said, not to forget that you knew this when you were 12, and I should know it now. Hmm. And that he was going to be there when I died. And I said, well, did he say when? And she said, no, I guess it's not anytime soon. (laughs) And I said, okay, good. Then we've got lots of time. Let's just play our game because we were playing the game. Yeah. So then later on, she came and had many talks with my sister. She lived with my sister on Salt Spring Island, and there was a good, very diverse spiritual community there. So they started doing with her what they, they didn't do what, with my sister, what they did with my brother and I. Uh, they had moved away and we had all gone on with our lives. We were much older than our sister so they they started together going to different churches like they did when when i was a child and one of the churches was a spiritual church where there were reiki healers and you know uh, psychics and mediums and empaths and my mother was just blown away out of the water and i remember her phoning me and calling me and saying is this what you do and i said at the time i didn't do it you know as as a job or a living or a career And I said, well, it's what I can do, Mom. I don't go out and just do it. I don't go out on the street and start telling everybody their fortune, if that's what you're (sighs) worried about. She goes, well, you know, some people might not want to know. I said, well, my experience, Mom, is that if they, they don't want to know, they don't ask. And if they do want to know, they're seeking the truth for themselves. And anything that I can do to help them, Find that for themselves and know it for themselves is a calling.
0: And she said, do it, "Yeah." Okay. Do you believe in destiny? What do What do you think about destiny I, and free will? Okay, and I, this
1: is this is oh, this is my very favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, thank you, thank you for asking that question. Right now, I'm looking at two plaques on my wall, and they are my favorite my favorite quotes of all time, and they're both by Byron. And the first one is destiny is not a matter of fate. Destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. Hmm. We have gates. We have paths. We have a journey with unlimited alleys and sideways and byways and rivers that we can take. And every one of those is going to lead us in a different direction. We also have a higher wisdom and an intuition and an empathy, and we are able to read energy. And the degree to which we trust it, the degree to which we lean into what our own heart and our own intuition is telling us is the degree to which we will choose the path that is most aligned for our greater good in that moment. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that, you know, When we take another turn in the journey, we won't loop back and have another opportunity to recreate that path. Mm -hmm. So you nourish your soul by fulfilling your destiny, but your destiny is always unfolding right where you are. It's not ever about where you're going to be. It's what you're being now that is your destiny. Your past is something that you grew through and you learned from. And your destiny is something that you are in now because all of the choices you made then brought you here and now. And if you are living fully as a fully realized human being in integrity, in truth, with balance, love, commitment, cooperation, coherence, creating that in community for everything and everyone around you, starting with yourself, because you can't show up for anyone else what you won't show up for yourself as. Then destiny is a beautiful journey that unfolds. When I was 18, I thought my destiny was to be a banker. And I did that for five years and I got a pretty good education in it. And then I moved overseas, had a fa- took a young family with me. And then I became a teacher and a swim coach because I was a, a, a com- competitive swimmer in my youth. It's one of, it was one of my physiotherapies, you know, back in the trough. So I became a really, really good swimmer. And when I went overseas, they didn't have any kind of swimming program, even though we lived, you know, on an ocean and we had all of this water all around us. So I brought the very first red cross swimming program to Sumatra and it got it going. And so I thought my my role was to be a coach and to be a teacher in international school. And for that period of my life, it was. And when I came back to Canada, while I was there, one of my passions was theater. So when I came back to Canada in my early 40s, I thought, well, wow, now I get to to explore theater and drama. And I did that for a few years, and then one of my children was seriously ill, and I had to to stop to care for her. And then I went into travel because oh well, I traveled so much all around the world, and everybody said I should teach people about traveling. So I bought a travel agency, and I did that. And then 911 happened, and I got wiped out. Just like everybody else. And it wasn't because my agency wasn't doing good. It wasn't because there still weren't people to travel. It was because the powers that be, the banks and the financiers, didn't trust the industry anymore and didn't trust that the industry and the entrepreneurs, the mom and pop, brick and mortar people, would survive through this loop of the tragedy of 911 and what it did to the world and the industry. So, I closed my agency, declared bankruptcy. My marriage had ended during the evolution of that, and I relaunched again. And I found out that bankruptcy was the best thing that ever happened to me. It taught me more about finance and, and how to be accountable in business than anything that had ever happened in my life. And it wasn't, it didn't happen. It was a choice. Bankruptcy didn't happen to me, a bank didn't force it. I had money, and I chose it to protect the assets that I had and to be able to move forward with some form of equity and integrity in my life. However, I felt ashamed. I really felt ashamed of that, and I found out that that was all BS because when I went to get a job as an executive with executive experience in the travel industry with high references – and i was offered four jobs from four different organizations i had headhunters looking for me i felt i had to be truthful and w- cuz i am truthful and when i sat with these interviewers executives and they'd say well what is the most uh, difficult thing that ever happened in your executive life and i said bankruptcy and i i still remember to this day tutor the first man saying to me what only once you're lucky <laughs> And I thought, and I said, well, I've always felt a little bit ashamed of it. He said, hey, that's the stripe you've got on your back from the whip that hit your life. Get over it. And I thought, wow. Wow. This is not a, a demon that I have to wrestle. This isn't a shame. Or, and it's not about, see, when I was there, I was in incoherence. It was about shame, blame, guilt, and fear. Yeah. And it was all there in the experience. All of those experiences led me to finally do what I'm doing now, which is coach from my life experience. So I was being a coach a little bit all the way along the line, and it was all part of my destiny, and every part of the journey was preparing me for this. And this, I didn't step into it till I was 64. And I can't imagine retiring. Hmm. I, I know I'll probably slow down so that I can do more of the, the things. Now that COVID's coming out, out, we're coming out the other end of it, praise praise be. I, I'm glad of that. You know, it's always going to be around, but we're going to have ways to deal with it and knowledge around it and science and, and support for it. So it's been a great leveling of consciousness to make us go in and recenter, reground, regroup, find community where we never found community before teach us new ways of showing up as as more of who we really are. And I, I think it's a blessing I think you know, we learn the most from the tragedies in our life. You know, I, I ask one of the questions I ask people is, tell me the, the best things that ever happened had, happened to you. And they can tell me, you know, one or two, three. And they say, oh, what are the worst things that ever happened to you? It's twice the list. <laughs> you know, people remember what laid them low, what took them down and made them stand up and find yeah. their courage.
0: Oh, we're hardwired we're hardwired to to see the negative, but in the same sense you can kind of you can kind of use that part of your brain against itself in a positive direction. I sometimes like to do this uh exercise. I've talked about it on the podcast too it's called a reverse gratitude list where basically you make a list of uh I heard that things that you're grateful for not having, you know like. Uh, you know, I'm grateful that I don't have to deal with, uh, you know, I don't know, disability or something, you know, or something that other people have to deal with every day. So that's a very powerful exercise because we tend to really look for things that we want to avoid very pain, you know, like painful things we want to avoid. And so you can flip that and, and use it to your benefit. So it's really interesting.
1: <laughs> I try to live from, you know, I had a, a few near death experiences, in my life. And one of the things I found going to the other side was on the other side, all there is, is calm, coherence and love, hmm. nothing else. So you ask where my faith comes from. I'm not sure I had infallible faith, unending, never ending faith before I died and came back the first time. And I don't remember the first time, but I think it instilled the, the grit and the guts, the heart gut connection in me that made me strong. And when I died three times after that, and I do remember those, and I did come back with memories and principles and components that are part of what I teach. Number one was the calm principle and how we are a mind self, a physical mental self and an emotional spiritual self and that when we join that mind physical self with that spiritual soul self we create this sacred space that is insoluble Hmm. nothing nothing can break it down and it doesn't matter what happens to us when we live from that space we're in grace I always say that grace trumps love because, you know, there's a lot of things, feelings, situations in your life that come up that you can't find or feel the love Yeah, when you can always find grace
0: Hmm. and
1: just be with it. Grace allows you to handle things when you're not feeling the love.
0: That's a good one. I really like that because it is true. There's a lot of things in life where, you know, trying to, to force yourself to be compassionate even or loving is, it's very challenging, but you can always be graceful, right?
1: Yes. Graceful. F-U-L-L. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he named my company Soulful Solutions.
0: Oh, I didn't yeah. notice the second L there. That's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's interesting. So
1: th- that was one of the principles from my near-death experiences. I got the calm principle. I got sacred soul self. I got infinite unity. I got the recipe for choice.
0: Have you ever yeah. read the book Journey of Souls? By, yes, I, have. I think, Michael Newton. Yes. What do you think about that in terms of your own experiences? Because he interviewed, or he hypnotized a lot of people in regards to their, you know, past lives and all that stuff. So I'm really curious...
1: Do you I you resonate to any of that? I absolutely 100% know that that we can dive into and do past life regressions and do our re, revisit past lifetimes. I've done it seven times myself. Um, I and, and the reason I did that, the reason I ever even re- read that book in the first place, is I always had an affinity for the, the United Kingdom. And I always mm. had an affinity. For was it in the UK that he did that? Um, right now, I can't honestly remember. I don't, yeah, I
0: don't remember. I thought it was in the US, but I mean, it could have in the UK. But yeah.
1: I always had an affinity growing up. Like I, w- I read insatiably about the United Kingdom and the history of England and the history right. of Scotland and Ireland and Wales, and it was befuddling to my parents. And I, I, I felt like I just knew it. Anything I read about England, I. I felt it so deeply within me. I felt the same way about the Hawaiian islands in the South Pacific. Then years later, I was visiting England uh, as a, as a young woman n- married, but no children yet. We were on our, our postponed honeymoon and doing a, a tour of, of Spain and decided to take a quick trip to England on the way home. And I was on one of those tour buses, double decker buses where you hop on, hop off. Yeah. And I was sitting on the bus with my husband and, We are two friends that went with us and we were just loving it. And I remember we turned down this street and there was this tobacco shop on the corner. And I was instantly transported back into that shop. I'd never seen it before. I'd never been in. I'd only been in England 24 hours. And there I was. And I knew that. And I knew where I lived.
0: Wow. and it was such
1: a shock I, I, I reacted I just jumped up I clanged the bell the bus barely stopped before I was jumping off and running and our my husband and our friends just jumped up and they were running with me they thought I'd lost my mind and they stopped me just before I got to the tobacco shop and I said I lived here I know this 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 place this corner has been here for hundreds of years I lived here and they said don't be ridiculous you know you're what, you been smoking pot? <laughs> and I said, no, I haven't been smoking pot. And it was like, oh, my God. So I said, look, I know that four blocks from here, there's a square. And in the square, there are four big townhouses around this square. And I lived in the middle one to the west. And there's stone lines on the steps. And there's a red door. Wow. And they, all right, let's go. And I just literally led the way. Without a map, without even knowing where I was, I went straight there. And there was the house and there was even the house number was the same.
0: Wow. That's crazy. You had and, the house number down too? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I
1: knew there was a three and a one and a seven. Right. And it it was just crazy. And I, I knew. I, when, I stopped, when was
0: that life? Because uh, London's it, pretty old. I mean
1: it was it was in the late 18th century okay and it it was about 1817 1819 in there i was a young yeah. girl at the age the age i saw myself at i was about 7 or 8 and i grew up i lived my whole entire life in that house and i stayed there and looked after my i was a the oldest daughter and i never married and i stayed there and looked after my parents wow then fast forward oh what was it Five years later, my husband and I are on our way to Indonesia. My father has just passed away. And we were talking, and we our daughter got sick, and we had to make a stop in Honolulu because she was a baby and she couldn't fly with her She had an ear in, infection. So we had to get off in Honolulu and stay there for a few days so that the baby could get well. And it was the same thing as England. We were walking down... Uh, Kamehameha Boulevard and the international market was there and I just suddenly, I I knew everything. I knew where to go. I knew what the streets were and I lived there at the turn of the 19th century in the early 1900s. I lived a life in Hawaii, a short life, but I lived a life there.
0: That's so interesting how we get these downloads and you know, they just, they just come into your mind, you know, these pictures. And it's like, you, you know, you're not making it up because it's so vivid and it's so sudden. There's like literally no way that you could possibly intellectually create something like that in your mind. It's just like literally somebody's putting that image, you know, downloading it into your brain. It's such an interesting experience.
1: Have you ever read um, Brian, Dr. Brian Weiss, many lives, many masters? No. He's an oncologist. He was an oncologist with 30, 30- Plus years experience. And he was one of my great teachers early on. Um, He noticed that people made a choice. He knew that when he gave a person a diagnosis of cancer, they made a choice. In the first three seconds that they were given this diagnosis, he said he didn't know this early on. It took him about 20 years to figure it out. And he said, suddenly, he said, I realized I could sit there, I could look in their eyes, and I knew within two seconds, whether they had were choosing to live or die. Wow. And it wouldn't matter whether they had. He said, I had people in stage, end stage four or five cancer, that there was no reasonable expectation that they were going to live more than a few weeks or a few months. And they would survive. They would heal and survive. And other people who had a very mild case of of treatable cancer that should not cause them death, would choose, hear cancer, and choose to die. Hmm. And he said, what I learned is that, that that any kind of facing of death is a gate. And then he went on to, to study near-death experiences because he had people that died, like myself, that died and had near-death experiences and came back to, to tell about it and to talk about it. And he just wrote these beautiful books but that's that's one i would many lives many masters many lives many masters dr brian
0: yeah that's fascinating stuff i mean i've read i've read some some books on that you know kind of stuff where like for example i had a a guy on the show named um dr dawson church and he he wrote a book called mind over matter which is very interesting where he talks about all the research that's been done on healing like you know Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff that we talk about with the Chakras and energy work, and uh, you know, Reiki, like all these different kinds of things, and all the research that's been done, mostly outside of the U.S. Because it seems like a lot of places outside the U.S. are interested more than the U.S. itself. So it's a lot of this like Japanese studies and things on people doing all kinds of stuff with their belief, you know, and their sort of energy and manipulating their energy. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. It's very compelling research, and especially if you're research driven, you know, it puts a, a big question mark in what we, I mean, even placebo research, you know, when I was mm-hmm. writing my last book and I, I have a whole energy, I have a whole section there on energy medicine, uh, you know, like every, practically every major part of energy medicine and what the research says and stuff. And I I've tried a lot of stuff with energy medicine. I've done sound baths. I've done, I mean, you name it, I've done it, you know? And so I'm uh, I I'm by no means, I would say, not one side or the other. For me, some things work, some things just don't, you know? And so ultimately, I think everybody has their own ability. But the thing that is very striking, especially when I I was putting that chapter together, is placebo research. And we tend to write off placebo as sort of like this, well, it's just placebo, you know? And it's, you know, because if we were to actually like give it any credence, it sort of throws a wrench in everything we understand about health and science and everything else. I mean, if you think about you know, I don't even off the top of my head right now, remember all the different research, but there's so many interesting things about the impact of what you believe on physical. I think one of them was like, even with painkillers, like they were basically like placebo was even as effective as uh, uh Morphine. That? Morphine. Yeah. Morphine. Yes. Yes. Which I've is lot like, freaking crazy to thing. me. Like how the hell, like, how does that even work? <laughs> And how can you, the question really is, I mean, obviously something's going on, you know, obviously something's going on, but the question is, you know, how, what is the fastest way we can learn to harness that power for ourselves and for the good and and not to destroy ourselves? That's really the ultimate question, isn't it? It's figuring out how do we harness that for the good? Because obviously something's going on. Obviously, if you look down deep enough, everything is all energy and quantum, you know, interactions and there's, there's just all kinds of weird stuff going on. So obviously something is, is there. The question is, how do you harness it? Can I
1: tell you a story about energy? Yeah. Neuroscience and what your mind can do, help your body to do. See your mind, your ego is there to protect you and it can be a very powerful driving force when you combine it with your soul energy and your intuitive knowing. Mm. So, I can't even remember what year it was, 96, 97. It was spring in southern Alberta. Um, I was out working in a garden all day, uh, was renting a friend's house. And it was such a beautiful day. And there was a a lot of little small lakes around us in southern Alberta there. And she decided, let's go get a big you know thermos of tea and a pizza and go out to the lake go out to bobe lake to one of the lakes and and the ice was was still on a lot large part of the lakes but there was a lot of open water too and we went out and we were sitting there and we'd driven as far up and around the lake up to the bend as we could and in doing so we passed a little car sitting there and i could see this young man sitting in a car reading he looked about 18 years old And I could see his family out walking on the point, right? Because there was only one other car there. And there are a lot of small cottages around, some of which had people living there. And some of them were closed up for the winter. And I could see this canoe out bobbing on the lake. And I thought, wow, it's pretty windy today for somebody to be out canoeing on the lake. But we continued on. And southern Alberta winds, we get these big, big crosswinds and chinooks. And it was chinooking. It was a spring chinook day. So we had, you know, 70, 80 K winds, 120 K up on the mountaintops. And so in this mountain valley where this lake was, this wind was screwing across the lake and it was making big waves, almost like ocean waves. And this canoe was going like this. And I thought, well, I hope he knows what he's doing out there. And we went on to sit down on our little tree stump and have our coffee and our pizza. And we were sitting there and I saw this kid jump out of the car and run to the lake And we were maybe a half a mile away now, but just looking down the hill towards this car park. And then he looked around and I could see he was very frantic. I couldn't see what he was frantic about because we were kind of in a little alcove. And he looked and he looked up at our car and then he just started running towards us. And I told my girlfriend, Susan, get in the car. We have to drive towards him. And I didn't know why. We jumped in the car. We started driving towards him like crazy and jumped out. And I said, and I don't know why I said it to her. I said, where are they? And he said, they're overturned. They're in the lake. Wow. And I looked and we were sitting there and I looked at him and he was a big stuffy man. And I said, you're a swimmer, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. I said, okay, we got 12, 15 minutes max to get there. You got eight minutes to get there. you got eight minutes to come back. If you can't get there and you can't get back, don't go. And he said, I can go. We shoved our clothes off, except for underwear. We jumped into the lake and we took off. We brought those two people out. Partway back, I started to go hypothermic. And I was pulling a 250-pound man. And I wasn't very heavy at the time. And I'm trying to pull and I'm using all of my strength. And I'm a really good swimmer. And I thought, I'm not going to make it. My head said, I'm not going to make it. We're both going to die here. And my heart said, you can do it. Think hot. And I i didn't question it. I thought hot. And I could feel my whole core warming. And I made it to with him to the water where I could stand up. And Nathan, the young man who had helped me, he jumped back in the water. He'd gotten the woman he brought out of the water. And she was lifeless. We brought her back to life. The guy had a heart attack. We brought him back to life. Wow. And it took 45 minutes for the guy, for, for the lo- local town to get the ambulance out there. And I remember sitting there wrapped in a blanket, chattering and looking out at the distance and where the canoe was and thinking, oh my God, we should never have been able to survive that. This was a spring frozen mountain lake. Wow. And the thought, just the thought, when Spirit said, think warm, the translation was be warm. And it was mind over matter.
0: Wow, that's insane. I mean, that's... and that
1: is yourself, your physical, mental, yeah, mind map holding hands with the heart map, creating the sacred space for you to be more than you can even imagine. You are.
0: That's incredible. What so a story! I believe in
1: neuroscience. I believe that we can train the mind to create magic. And when we marry that with our soul's heart and intuition, there's nothing we can't do. Nothing.
0: Amen to that. Amen to that. One more question for you, Donna. What are you you most grateful for today?
1: Being here with you.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Play right back at you.
1: I am most grateful for being here with you. Anytime that I can connect, uh, with another spirit and share the journey and share the stories and the lessons that's my purpose now and my reason for being now and uh, now here so I'm grateful for being now here
0: Right, Well, so much great insight in this conversation. Thanks for being here with us till the very end. You know, I hope one thing you got out of this was to remember your own divine nature, you know, your own ability to create the life that you love and to quote unquote, live on purpose. As the title of this episode says, it's so important, so important. And it's, it's never too late. You know, Donna's story is very inspiring. It doesn't matter, you know, where you are in life. We can always live on purpose you want to go connect with Donna, go check her out at DonnaFairhurst.com. It's spelled F-A-I-R-H-U-R-S-T.com. It's Donna with two N's. And again, I'll put the link for this episode. It's episode 248 on the show notes for this episode. Let's not forget our great quote from W.J. Byron at the beginning of this episode. Destiny is not a matter of chance. It is a matter of choice. I love that quote, you know, such a, such a great reminder. In the beginning, I told you guys that I, I've had a lot of readings done. I've done a lot of energy work myself, like had it you know done to me and I've had some people read, you know, do some readings on me that were very uncanny in the sense that there's no way that they would have known the things that they knew about me. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where I didn't want to know my future anymore. You know, I, I didn't want to know what was coming <laughs> And you can read a little bit about that in some of my books that i've I've written uh, recently, but the point is is that where am I going with this? Ultimately, it doesn't matter if if all your destiny's been pre-written and you know you, you've got a storybook in front of you and you have to just live it out because it doesn't change the experience of living it from day to day and making the choices, even if somebody were to tell you everything that was going to happen in your life, exactly you, you would still have to live every day moment by moment and actually experience those choices. That's a very different reality. And so ultimately, uh, this is what living on purpose to me means is being in the now being intentional and living life frame by frame one day at a time. That's really all we can do is do our best and do it one day at a time. So enjoy, enjoy your weekend, live one day at a time, be a little more present today. Tune into yourself. And we'll see you on Tuesday for a little Tuesday transformation. Don't forget, your life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. For more inspiration, free resources, and bonus content, Stay connected at danceoflife.com.